sunny Monday here in Edinburgh. And Monday means it's Religious Studies Project podcast time. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Cotter. And we are brought to you in association with the British Association for the Study of Religions and the North American Association for the Study of Religion. This week is Alan Thomas again. Indeed, and this is uh, actually this week we were kind of brought in association with ISCON as well, who um, funded us to come and record a couple of interviews at their uh, conference marking their 50th anniversary. ISCON, if you don't know, is the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, perhaps better known as the Hare Krishnas. This week we've got two podcasts. The first one today is um, with Kim Knott, our good friend, and it's uh, describing the history of the movement in Britain um, in the past 50 years, one of the most significant and important new religious movements in the country and, and possibly in the world. So I'm going to pass over to Alid and Kim. Welcome to the uh, Religious Studies Project. I am at the ISKCON 50 conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Hare Krishna movement. I'm Ale Thomas from the Open University, a PhD candidate, and I am joined by Professor Kim Knott from Lancaster University. And today we're going to be discussing a brief overview of ISKCON in uh, modern Britain from its arrival in Britain to the present day. Hi, Kim. Hello. Glad to be here. Wonderful. What was the first major event for ISCON in the UK? As in, when did ISCON first arrive in the UK and what and what was its main purpose at the time? Okay, well, if so ISCON was first established um, in the United States in 1966, after that's one year after the arrival of AC Bhaktivedanta Swami, who was a Swami who made that difficult journey from uh, from India to the United States in 1965, put down roots in the United States, gathered together a group of young followers uh, in that first year or two. And, and ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which is what ISKCON stands for, um, that it was founded in 1966. Um, in the, the following year, um, Bhaktivedanta Swami, and if I I'll, I may switch between calling him Bhaktivedanta Swami and Prabhupada, he's, that's, he's also known particularly by the devotees by that name. He asked some of his devotees to start temples in other parts of the United States, and uh, particularly on the east coast, uh, on the west coast of America. And then it was, uh, I think it was um, towards the end of 67, uh, 1967, that he then selected three couples um, who'd had particular success in establishing ISKCON in uh, the western part of the United States. He asked them to come to London. So they arrived in London in that year, later that year in 67. And it was uh, then it was about how could they establish themselves? Because you can imagine setting up um, a new religious movement, very Indian, culturally very Indian, um, not really something that the British public would have been used to. So trying to get a foothold mm. here in Britain, just as it was difficult in the States as well, uh, that was quite a challenge. So the key... The key things that they did when they first arrived, they had in their mind to um, follow ISKCON's teachings, which really uh, have their roots in a much earlier period of Indian religious history 
to follow Iskon's teachings, to chant um, the names of Krishna in every town and village. And so they wanted to chant the names of Krishna in London. And they had in their mind, very idealistically, I think, um, that they'd get the Beatles to help them. Amazingly enough, they succeeded. <laughs> um, so uh, what, this is one of the two things that they did was to, uh, in, in order to chant the names of Krishna in every town and village, they engaged the Beatles in that process. And they did that by going down to Apple Studios repeatedly and eventually meeting up with George Harrison, who then facilitated for them to make a single of the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra, as it's called. That's extremely well, that extremely well-known mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, and so on. Um, they, um, they made a single. It was shown on Top of the Pops. Uh, it went to number one in the top 20. Uh, on the first day alone, it sold 70,000 copies. So the, one, that, that was one of the very first things they did, and they, it was just amazing success in reaching out through popular culture to a very wide uh, audience. And the other key thing they did in that first year was to start a temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so making a space for Krishna was another key uh, element in um, Prabhupada's goals for his movement, you, you know, f- making a home for Krishna in, you know, whether it's in New York or the West Coast or in the UK or in, in, in any of the other countries that um, ISKCON was to expand into. And so the first temple was in Berry Place in London, um, having, I think the devotees had just had some, occupied some warehouse space in Covent Garden before that, they got this temple and with the help of a, 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 a London Hindu society, they got some um, deities for the temple um, and Prabhupada came over from the United States to install them. Um, and so the temple was officially opened at, uh, in December um, of 1969, this was. So... Uh, within a very short time, between nineteen beginning of 1968 and the end of 1969, the devotees had come over from the States and they'd really established ISKCON in these two major ways. You mentioned the phenomenal success of the uh, of the single that they released, especially compared to uh, sales of modern music these days. <laughs> um, I was wondering, the single was clearly very well received, but how well received was ISKCON in Britain at the time? Was, were there any challenges for them in establishing themselves or were they generally well accepted amongst no. the British public? And also in the, um, in the, in the opposite sense, uh, how did ISCON feel about Britain? Mm. And, um, uh, and were, were they very much, uh, reclusive or quite open? Okay. So, um, how were they received, um, uh, by the British public? I would say with amusement, probably, to some extent. Don't forget, this was a time where uh, there were a lot of young people interested in, in India, the sort of great, the grand tour of India. They were interested in Indian culture. There were a lot of new religious movements um, arising in this period or, or new movements of one kind or another, new spiritual movements. There was an interest in in meditation the beatles had already shown that they had this interest um so amongst a certain strata of society they were they were there was a lot of interest 
But of course, in a wider in the wider social context, there was more bemusement than anything else. I don't think there was significant negativity at the beginning. Uh, it, it's really in the second decade of um, Iscon's time in the UK. So that's really from um, about 19, where are we? 1976. So in the 70s and early part of the 80s. Uh, you do see more negativity. And that was because once Iscon starts to try to engage directly with the wider public on the streets, um, you know, it's it's about raising money, getting donations, uh, giving books. Um, so, you know, to some extent, there's... A, a, People, people were engaged in that process, but the media start to then to ask questions about, uh, you know, coercion, coercing the public, you know, how are they getting their, their money, you know, all those kind mm. of questions which inevitably arise around these kind of things. Also in that same period in the 1970s, you have the earliest days of an organised anti, anti-cult movement. So FAIR, which is, oh, I don't know if I can remember the acronym, Family Action and Information information and Rescue, something like that. Um, that was established in 1976 uh, to really challenge, uh, provide information on, um, help ex-members of m- movements like the Unification Church, the Church of Scientology, um, ISKCON and so on. So in that period, there was quite a lot of negativity partly from the sort of evangelical wing of the churches but also from some this parents organization um so yes it certainly wasn't all sweetness and light mm. with the general public in that time and there were and iscon also had its own difficulties in that period too because in 1977 um the, the founder bhaktivedanta swami he passed away and then you're into what you you often get with um a, a newish religious movement when it comes to the the issue of succession, you have uh, challenges about how who should succeed, how they should succeed, what should happen next. Um, are do those are those gurus who take over legitimate? Are they following in the way of Prabhupada and so on? So you've got those internal uh, internal problems as well as yes, a little bit of external negativity and sociologists are. Roy Wallace, for example, wrote about ISKCON. He called it a world-rejecting mm. movement. He saw it as an insular movement in that period. And James Beckford also writes about it as a, a, a movement of refuge, insular, uh, it's mode of, of insertion in society, not really very outward-looking. Um, so, yeah, that was a phase which, which actually didn't really last that long, I think, in ISKCON's history. But it was... Um, yeah, perhaps a more closed, inward-looking phase than some later ones. It's an interesting contrast to when they try to get the Beatles to help them for promotion. Yeah, um, true. Uh, the idea of using celebrities as modern saints uh, is definitely tapped into that with uh, the work with George Harrison. And uh, I know recently that Russell Brand has been uh, associated with the Hare Krishna movement uh, through his drug addiction and uh, overcoming that and so forth. Have Iskon really targeted more celebrity promotion in recent years? Or is that something that's really been left in the past now? And do do they work as a singular unit? And as you were saying, world rejecting in the sense that they don't look outwards 
towards celebrities for promotion? Is is that something that's gone now? And if there were figures like Russell Brand, for example, would they have to come to Harry? Uh, would they have to come to Iscon themselves rather than Iscon go to them? Yeah, I think the days of going to ce- out to celebrities is probably gone. But um, I mean, there were a lot of other celebrities who came. Um, who had contact with Hare Krishna in the period between the Beatles and um, Russell Brand, Annie Lennox, um, Hayley Mills. I mean, so not just not just singers. Um, well, and obviously Russell Brand. I don't think we call him a singer, would we? Um, <laughs> but uh, so, but I think these days, it, it, of course, they they're very welcoming to. Mm. Still very welcoming if somebody goes, you know, whether they're a well-known person or not, really. Um, especially to helping people out with the kind of uh, presenting issues that Russell Brown would have had. But, uh, yeah, I don't think there's that sort of courting of celebrities that there once, once might have been. But that the absence of that is not in itself a sign of them being world-rejecting because the other major thing that's happened right from the earliest days, and I mentioned it right at the beginning, is that relationship with the Indian Indian Hindu mm. community. So right at the beginning, you've got that London Hindu society who bought the deities for the first London temple. And that relationship builds and develops all the way through ISKCON UK's history. So uh, particularly in the third decade of their development, the third decade was really marked by um, what we call the campaign to save Bhaktivedanta Manor. So Bhaktivedanta Manor was the temple given, it was it was the house given by George Harrison to Iskon in 1973. Um, and uh, it was, everything was fine and dandy for a good few years, but the pressures built up, tensions built up with uh, the local, with people in the local village and with the local council, because it, Bhaktivedanta Manor became very, very important as if you like a, a site of pilgrimage, somewhere where um, Hindus from all over Britain went at times of festivals and so on. And so there was high pressure on the streets of the, the village and the surrounding area at those busy peak periods. Um, and the, there was a lot of anxiety in the village. That, and eventually what happened is they get, they're, they're served with an order to close the public worship aspect, mm. but they can keep the theological side going, the theological college aspect of mm. Bhaktivedanta Manor. But in um, this would have been in the mid eighties, charged to uh, to close public worship, and they were given a final date by which all public worship was to end. In I think it was March, sometime in March nineteen ninety four. And in this period of intensive activity, there are two major public inquiries, you know, run by the Secretary of State for the Environment, you know, with QCs and so on, two appeals. It goes everywhere, it goes to Europe uh, in an attempt to save Bhaktivedanta Manor as both a place of worship and a, and a theological college. Um, and in the end, it's successful, but it's principally successful because of the incredible public support gained from the Indian Hindu community, such that on on one day when the enforcement notice was served, uh, was to be served 70,000 people a mass in, uh, have I got that right? <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? My memory for statistics is not what it was. Anyway, a very, very large number of people, uh, tens of thousands of people 
a mass in central London and protest. And over a long period of time, you have protests and petitions and so on, lobbying of parliament and so on, particularly by younger Hindus in Britain. So the Indian Hindu community right from the early days was important. It's very important in the campaign to save the manor. And even today, it's still very, very significant. So no longer world rejecting, mm-hmm. very much part of a broader Hindu scene. I'll, uh, I'll end on a reasonably sociological question. Okay. Um, I, I was wondering about statistics simply in, in terms of numbers for ISKCON. In Britain, are uh, uh, numbers of practitioners rising or are they decreasing? And also in recent years, there's been uh, the discussion of uh, ISKCON's education um, what what does what does that mean for ISCON in Britain? What do you foresee in the next mm. few years for ISCON? Okay, I haven't a clue how many how many people are participating in ISCON, and I think it would be very very difficult to say because so you could have you know you could have the base figure. I don't know what it is. You know how many members of ISCON are there? But what is that really going to tell mm. you? Because much more interesting is the outreach of ISCON. Uh, into a whole range of areas. I mean, if you think about its food programme, its interfaith programme, the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies, which is now affiliated college of the of Oxford University. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's, it's sort of reaching out into all sorts of areas of society, particularly the area of education. So having set up ISKCON Education Services in the 1990s, um, there's now a very, very significant process of outreach that and that means bringing in as well as going out so it means going out to schools and colleges it means bringing people into Bhaktivedanta Manor Uh, but of course in recent years it's also meant with the establishment of the Krishna Avanti Schools Trust and uh, a a foundation called I Foundation it's gone along with other you know a much wider group within the Hindu community have set up a trust to establish voluntary aided schools, academies and um, and free schools. So the Hindu schools in Britain are in part, you know, in part inflected mm. with the teachings of ISKCON and ISKCON members have done an awful lot to create those schools. So uh, if we think just about the base numbers, I don't think it gets us very far. I think much more important to think is to think about these broader influences within society and the, and the big question about whether British Hinduism and British Hindus have been isconized in the, in the process. It raises very interesting questions about the divisions between Hinduism and ISKCON. Yeah, it does. Kim, fantastic. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much. And uh, see you again. Thank you. Another excellent interview from Alid there, and it's great. Um, you know, Hare Krishna is a movement we haven't featured really at all. It might have come up very briefly in some of our podcasts on new religious movements, but great to focus in on a particular case study like that. So thanks, Alid, and thanks, Kim. So we mentioned that um, it's the first of two podcasts this week. Normally we might have a written response to the podcast, but because Alid was attending the um conference celebrating ISKCON at 50. Um, there was a, a roundtable um, discussion that because they, the organizers knew the Religious Studies Project was going to be there, it was kind of worked into the conference program and recorded. Um, so that is on the theme of what happens when a new religious movement 
ain't so new anymore. Indeed, so an interesting question. When, at which point does a new religious movement cease to be a new religious movement and merely a religion? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll leave that till... Uh, well, that'll be out on Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thanks to Escon again and to Suzanne Newcomb as well for uh, chairing that roundtable and, and uh, very skillfully making it work for a recording and for the live audience at the same time. Exactly. So it's always a, always much, a difficult one. Very much looking forward to that. Um, so when I was sitting in the cafe uh, next door to the uh, university here waiting for David um, to leave his allotment, uh, the Religious Studies Project got a tweet. Um, so I just want to shout out to Richard Newton. He's assistant professor of religious studies at Elizabethtown College in uh, Philadelphia. He said, and I quote, I loved the At Project RS episode on UFOs, conspiracy theories and religion. It's a good entry into religious studies. Um, I, I quite enjoyed that one too. Well, I, I found it nerve wracking, but I'm glad that people seem to have enjoyed it. It was, um, yeah, it was fun doing it. Yeah, so thanks to Richard for letting us know. Um, yeah, thanks Richard. We, we get various interactions like that um some commentary on the podcast on our twitter feed which is at project rs um you'll also find a bit of buzz on facebook and our um, youtube channel is really um starting to kick off particularly after the uh, uh video episode on bdsm as religious practice and we're going to be having um more video episodes coming up next year hopefully quite a few of them we intend to be filming quite a lot at the easr um and i've just been having a conversation with a technologist about um, how to edit them better next time. So uh, look forward to that. Yeah. Um, as ever, don't forget our Amazon links, .co.uk.com and .ca. It doesn't cost you anything extra on top of your purchase to support us, but it's a significant little added revenue stream for us to keep these exciting podcasts coming to you. Indeed. Next week will be an interview um, by... Our good friend Martin Lepage, our um, archives editor over there in Canada. And it is with Brock Baylor on embodied religious practices and cognitive neuroscience. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>